Michael, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. I'm very excited for this today. I'm stoked to be here. You guys are, have a ton of energy and it's great. I, uh, the mini fridge behind me is where I store all my energy in little, little cans. <laughs> so I, I, took, I took some out for the show. So we'll be, we'll be in good hands. I want to start out with your uh, kind of system and framework around effectuation. Specifically, one of the principles I kind of was reading through and I'm like, oh, that's exactly where I am right now. So I'm, I'm launching a new company, kind of spinoff of what I've been doing. And we don't really have like a ton of authority and expertise in the, in the industry. And so one thing you talk about is having a skin in the game partner. It's kind of like a big accelerator and something that really um, gets you going and helps you get to the next step faster. So I was curious if you could kind of expand on your playbook and the way you think about, right, things not to do, things to do, and places to find that skin in the game partner and structure in a way where it's actually aligned. Yeah, a million percent. Yeah, if, for those of you not familiar with it, I use a system to develop new businesses and ventures called effectuation. I started actually using all these principles. It has six principles. I started using them actually before I knew it had a name uh, because it's like the worst marketed like startup generation like thing ever. It's like bizarro lean startup. Like everybody knows lean startup, but nobody knows effectuation. And it has these six different principles. And um, one of them is this idea of building like a crazy quilt. And what this professor who put it all together and she she's out of UVA, uh, what she saw was like successful entrepreneurs would go build like these coalitions of people who were basically missionaries and not mercenaries to go after specific ventures and opportunities. And so to answer your specific question, like using that crazy quilt principle, like I want to go look for people who are going to be aligned with me in terms of that missionary idea. Like we're more about creating something beautiful and changing the world and less about like, how do we get paid right now? So, you know, there's there's things you can do to go find those people. Um, here's one of the things. They're rarely found inside of big corporations. They're often people that are on the outskirts of those things. And a lot of my co-founders and stuff like that that I've met and created kind of this crazy quilt with are people that I met in other places. So that's kind of number one idea is like go start hanging around like co-working spaces or like weird clubs. Like don't expect to go find one in your W-2 job because a lot of times those people have self-selected out of those places. So that's one of the techniques. And then I'm happy to go like there's a bunch of nuances to it and things that I do that I think work well in terms of, you know, tracking down the, the right type of people to partner with. It's funny. Right after I wrote that question down, uh, just on my little outline, I saw one of your tweets about cycling and it said, you know, I highly recommend finding friends who like to suffer. And I was yes. like, those tweets aren't related, but I feel like they should be like the <laughs> tweets connecting the dots between the skin in the game partner and especially depending on the stage that the business is in and in the cycling. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's, you know, the J curve of money and profit that happens with a company, right? You guys are familiar with that, the J curve idea, like there's a J curve of pain also, right? Where people have to go through the J curve of pain. So you have to find people that are going to be okay with that. And to some extent, I look for signals also, where they've built their life around being able to make sacrifice in the short term to have long term gain, like, do they have the flexibility? Can they potentially, you know, partner with me like I'm going to do and not make money for some period of time, or maybe even ever? Um, and all those things are like good signs there. But yeah, I, I wrote that tweet because it, it was interesting. I look at all my friends now, they all have like the same level of like interest in suffering. Like they'll go physically suffer on the weekends. So they're CrossFitters or they're cyclists or all these folks. And it's like, oh, like this is my tribe. Like I like hanging around with those people. And I think, you know, not everybody has to live that way, but I love those people. I feel like another common thing that those people, uh, would have with each other is the courage to be disliked. And I know that that's a book that you uh, have talked about before and that you like, 
it's something that I struggle with, um, you know, just what other people think. Could you talk a little bit about what that book means to you or, or meant uh, and, and how you think about being willing to be disliked by people? So The Curse to Be Disliked, it's one of my favorite books, most possibly because it's like super weird. It's like a Viennese, like an Austrian philosophy from the 19th century that was interpreted by uh, 20th century Japanese guys and then translated back to English. So it's like, it's, we're not starting off from like Normalville with this book at all, but it has a number of ideas where they try to explain about the philosophy from this guy Adler, uh, who was around in the, the 19th century in, in Vienna. Um, and one of the ideas that they talk about really importantly is there's two different types of uh, choices or two different types of opinions about how the life you should live gets set, right? And there's there's what they call me ideas and you ideas for my lifestyle. And you ideas are when your parents say, hey, you need to go be a lawyer. And this is the life we want you to live. You need to marry a woman and you need to go do this and you need to go like live you know, like in the suburbs. And that's your lifestyle choice. Uh, and me ideas are when I decide, hey, like what's really right for me is the lifestyle I want to live. Like I'm going to go travel the world. I want to be a travel blogger, whatever that is. Like that's a me idea. And the courage to be disliked idea in the title is really when somebody tells you that you should live a lifestyle that they want for you, that is not only like none of their business, but it's also an unkindness. And that the idea is the courage you have to have is when somebody tries to tell you to live a certain life that's not the right life for you, you have to have the courage to get, get them mad, to make them mad by doing what's right for you. And, you know, ultimately, like, that's the core idea here. It's like, look, you should decide what lifestyle you want to live and follow that and be okay with people disliking you for that reason. And so, like, it precisely, like, in my life, this happened, like, a month ago. Like, I was in a coffee shop and, like, somebody who's known me for, like, 20 years just casually mentioned, like, she liked me better 15 years ago when my lifestyle was different. And uh, I was like, well, wait a second. Like, you know, all, young me would be, would have been like, well, that's... Maybe she has a point. I should change my entire lifestyle. And I was like, wait, 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 it's just totally wrong. Like that was like they, that person, that's not a kindness to say something like that. Right. It's just like one of those things where like, when I hear something like that, it's like, oh, okay. Like I need to have the courage to be like, no, no, your choice for me and the life you want me to live, that's your business. I'm going to choose who I want to be and I'm going to choose my lifestyle and I'm going to go after that. So anyway, that's why I love that book. Um, I wish I'd read it as a younger person, but it didn't exist when I was younger. So. Yeah, I see a lot of similarities with that and kind of to your same philosophy about not trying to change people's minds, right? Like that's one of your, you just put a piece of content out about that. And I like that a lot because I think you timed it well in terms of just a lot, a new, very polarizing issue that's kind of really popular right now. And I don't think popular is the right word, just it's being front and center. And everyone's kind of has that same temptation to be like, well, I'm right and everyone needs to agree with me. And other, if they don't, then I'm going to be really unhappy. It's kind of like the inverse. So it's like you personally need to be okay when other people like say things that you're like, I don't care. Like you don't like me. I mean, I'm just going to the beat of my own drum and then kind of vice versa, not trying to be the type of person telling other people that they have to go do things differently as well. Yeah. And, and look, I think social media for me has been hugely helpful to reinforce that, that idea that you're talking about, which is one I've watched people do their like closed-minded thing and like go out and just like kill themselves and go do it. Then I've watched people do it to me as well, where I've had situations, for example, like, look, let's be realistic. Like I'm a middle-aged, somewhat successful white business dude who gives advice on Twitter, right? So there are groups of people who like see me show up 
and like assume I'm a certain way, right? That, oh, I'm from Texas too. Like must be a racist POS, right? Like that, like I've seen that happen to me and I'm like, oh wait, like this is a really an opportunity for us to like step back and rethink our idea of like, should we be putting more of these U ideas onto other people and, and that sort of thing. So anyway, the social media is really solidified, I think in a good way, you know, that I shouldn't have so many strong opinions for other people to think the way they maybe don't want to think. Well, you recently put out a tweet that admitted uh, the kind of classification or differentiation between um, universal truths and what you're describing now as you uh, ideas. What are the universal truths that you found, maybe just one or two, um, that you are always willing to like give advice and tell people that they should adhere to this principle? Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's a dichotomy, right? And and you can see it like you guys are a bit earlier in your career than me. Uh, like the first thing I do when somebody gives me advice is I try to understand, is this a universal principle or is this a is this a tactic or a lifestyle choice? Right. And like so, for example, like a universal principle, like let's the Bible is full of them. Thou shall not kill people. OK, like that's bad. Murder is a bad thing. Don't do that. Um, lifestyle choices is stuff we talked about before. I want to be a travel blogger. I want to be a lawyer. Those are straight up lifestyle choices, in my opinion. And whenever I see those two different things, I'm like, okay, well, like I know I should pay attention when principles come through because those are timeless. But when these lifestyle choices come through, like it's like usually I should just do the opposite because <laughs> they're you ideas for somebody else. So, you know, I think there's those types of universal principles in business as well. Like a business exists to serve and make, you know, you delight customers and you're going to turn around and be successful, right? You treat your employees as people and not as objects. Like that is a universal principle. Everybody should do that. But then there's things that are like lifestyle choices or stylistic choices of how you're going to build a business. You should do it in public. Well, actually you can do it in public or in private or hybrid or whatever. They, they all work. You should be remote work, hybrid, or fully in office. Well, actually, they're all just stylistic choices, and you can choose the way you want to run a company. So, I mean, I think that's the key thing I talk about with these, like, universal principles always, stylistic choices. Yeah, you usually do the opposite, <laughs> or at least at very little, ignore, at the very minimum, ignore them. One thing I heard you say on, I believe it was Greg Eisenberg's podcast, is that now kind of at the stage you are in your career and in life in general, you're really starting to say no to a ton of opportunities. And presumably several of these are, are good opportunities, right? I, I heard that, you know, you have, whether it's 12 or more than 12 businesses that you're actively involved in at the board level and to some extent need to be accountable to like be up to speed on what's happening and just dedicate space in your head to like keeping up with all that. There's, you have to be more selective both because of where you think you are in your career and just how full your plate already is. I'm curious, not necessarily in terms of specific opportunities, but now that you're at this point where you're highly selective and also very mission and or impact driven, if those weren't criteria you had for yourself, what are some opportunities here in 2023, either business models or industries or trends that if you didn't have to be as selective as you were, and you didn't have as many commitments as you had, you'd be really interested in exploring. And let's say like low capital expenditure as well. That's great. Um, yeah, I read, I read some tweets about that. It was actually like, okay, like I'm in, I'm in my late 20s and I want to start a business. Like what, what are some things I would, I would definitely consider doing? Um, look, I think uh, things that are still very appealing sectors like um, real estate, private equity is one where like there's lots of room for young people to come into that space now um, and create, I think, really good businesses around different niches, of that that type of stuff. Um, those are great businesses. They're typically low capex. You get paid fees. You know, you're you, you're in a, and you're in an asset class that right now in the United States has a ton of tailwinds. We're not 
building any more real estate and it's very tough to build things here in the US. And in some classes like class B industrial, like actually the supply side is shrinking uh, much faster than it's growing. So all of those things I think are really good. Um, I think, you know, agency businesses continue to be really good and they're getting even more powerful now with like the networkification and the productization of different agency businesses. Like I totally love some of those. The problem is they're tough, tough to scale, uh, especially when your customers are very small. One of the things we are actually in, um, we started 18 months ago is, you know, the continued offshoring, um, of jobs, uh, from the U S um, and the globalization of talent around that. We started a company that helps people do that. Uh, into LATAM. Um, I love that trend as well. And then the last one, I think the COVID boom has really caused a lot more of acceptance on Main Street America to like really be okay joining like online communities and being accessible and that stuff. So we just sort of business around that. But I think you're seeing a lot more of those community style businesses, which are fantastic. Um, my buddy, uh, whose name is Ty Radigan, he runs one specifically for uh, tech startup business development people called um, partnership leaders. And it's like a great business, um, you know, but it's one, it, he just started on the side and it's him with a bunch of VAs. Like, it's just a beautiful, it's just a beautiful business. So I think communities are another one that I would be really excited uh, if I was looking for a business with low CapEx, low startup costs, and, you know, sc somewhat a level of scalability as part of it. So some of those are my favorite. And then of course I, I wrote more in the, the thread as well. Absolutely. Uh, I love all of those ideas. One question that I had for you is during your 20s, I think it was your 20s, basically on the timeline of your life, you worked as an engineer for, I think, like six years after college. And then for 10 years, you built what I believe to be a family firework business. I'm not sure if, if you started it and ran it or if it was your family. Um, and then in kind of like in 2010 to 2013, you kind of like started all of these different businesses really seemingly, seemingly leveled up. I don't know if that's the way you see it. Uh, it's kind of the way your resume reads. What happened during that time? And was it just, you were ready to kind of grow and, and start all of these different new businesses or had you been doing that the whole time? What was that period like for you? Yeah. So timeline wise, definitely in reading my LinkedIn, it feels like it happened so fast. As I look back on it, it feels like it happened so slow, right? Like it was 2008, 2009. Like I really felt like I wanted to do something other than to be an owner operator of a single business. I wanted to do more of what I was doing now and work on businesses and, you know, incubate them and create them and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't really end up starting the next thing till like four years later. You know, I had little kids, you know, little kids will change your life like the period the period from zero to six with my little kids like i don't really it feels like a, a lost generation for me <laughs> like i don't really remember if it's like a total blur because you don't sleep and it's really demanding and then i didn't really start to incubate um my second company until 2013 so a decade ago and the third company incubated around 2014 ish and then really there was kind of a gap there and then it was 2017 and then two in 2018 and then it's accelerated recently as i think i've figured some stuff out so anyway that's just a way of saying like in the media and like linkedin it makes everything seem like it happens so quickly and it's like nope it's like 20 years <laughs> like so anyway just trying to trying to set some expectations in terms of i don't know hopefully that's reassuring like because i felt like such pressure when i was in my 20s to be like oh things have to happen faster why isn't it happening tomorrow and it's like well the reality is they they kind of don't. That's just the natural way of things. It just, the world makes it seem that way. That's kind of what I'm trying to, to get at. Like, um, you know, it, 
it feels like we're behind Lewis and I, and, and it doesn't feel like that. Like every day, I'm just saying, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And it's encouraging to see that you ran a business for 10 years and, and then you had success even over that course of 10 years. But what, what was it about you that had to change or that did change to allow you to be the type of person that can start, you know, uh, 11 other businesses during that period of time where the prior 10 years you were just running Alamo? Yeah, I think there was a combination of factors. Um, there's some of the courage to be disliked stuff, right? And the courage to be disliked idea is not just like people around you or parents or community or whatever. It's the world at large and what the media is telling you. Like all of those things, like over time, you know, I had to get more comfortable with just deciding the type of life I wanted to live and having the courage to do that. I think also to be real about it, like doing what I do today, I wasn't ready to do that 15 or 20 years ago from a skill standpoint. Like there's, you know, there's a level of like things you have to do to be a CEO of a small business. And that's like a really freaking hard job. Like we don't talk about how hard that job is, but then there's a level of, okay, you want to coach those people and you want to like hire them and incubate them and help them be their best. Like that's a totally different skill set because my job as what I do today is like a board member and incubator is like a totally different business, totally different set of tasks all day from what I did when I was a CEO. And like, I had to unlearn a bunch of stuff that I was doing when I was a CEO to get there. So I think that was the second thing that had to change. For me, one of the biggest transformations was joining a CEO peer group. I did it way too late. I did it in my mid thirties. Um, but as I look back on it now, like that was transformative. I would go in and I was finally hanging out with other CEOs. Like I saw the struggles they were going through. Uh, I didn't feel so inadequate anymore when you go into a room like that because you realize they're all just figuring it out as well. Um, so yeah, so those are the two major things, skill set, mindset. One part of your playbook that I really admire is the kind of apprentice and associate model. Like I feel like there's, you know, people recording this podcast and, you know, I think it'd be really cool for myself and Kyle to always like to interview like someone like yourself is kind of that like established doing their thing in the groove. And then you're like bringing all these people up with you at, at in these apprentice and associate role. And I have a question about that in a second. It's like, I think it's equally fun to go and interview all of those people because five to 10 years from now, I mean, they're just getting so much advanced knowledge and so much accelerated timelines from you that like, where are all those people, like all of your current associates, where are they going to be in their mid forties? I think that's all going to be like, I, I'm optimistic about the track record for all of them. So I'm curious when, like when and why you started that system and kind of like what it is that you, like how you structure it to be successful. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, so let's take the second part first. And I've kind of, I'll talk about the model and what I do and what I try to do it. And then I'll talk about how we got started with it. So the, the associate model is basically one where as I started to try to create ventures with other people, I realized there were these kind of fixed inflection points where you could actually find people who were going to be the missionaries and not mercenaries, right? And so... Like a lot of people, for example, try to go find like a mid thirties, like family person, right. And who's in a W2 job and be like, okay, well, you're going to be the CEO of our new thing. And we're going to partner together. And immediately like that W2 person, like is not an entrepreneur. They've never done it. And they don't really have the risk tolerance to get, you know, into like starting something right then. Right. It's very rare that they do. And so I saw that, that there were these kind of inflection points. And one of the ones that I honed in on was. There's this time kind of in your mid 20s, 24 to 26, 27, where you've had your first or second job. You've always been interested in entrepreneurship and you probably haven't grown up around entrepreneurship. That's like a very typical like associate characteristic for me. 
And these people are smart, they're hungry, but they didn't have like that business uncle or like a dad who was like showing them the way, right? Because entrepreneurship probably wasn't ever in their family. And so I realized, okay, this is one of the inflection points where I could really get in and help people. And I love dealing with young people. I like, they're super fun. They're energetic. Like they have less ideas to, that I have to unlearn from them. Like all of those are like great things. And so that's the model of what I do today. And typically I hire folks and I'll do it one or two at a time. Uh, and then their whole job is just to figure out what their next job is. So I pay them a salary. Um, so it's de-risk for them. And basically, we just spend time over the coming months trying to figure out a business opportunity to pursue. And it could be a business opportunity that they go do by themselves or along the way, hopefully I produce enough value that they decide that they want to partner with me and we figure it all out at that point. But there's no strings attached when the people come in. It's just like, okay, like your whole job is to go out and find our next thing to work on. And I've done it six times now, seven times now. Um, I would say five of those times have been very successful. Two of them haven't worked out and I could talk about why they haven't worked out. Um, good people just didn't work out. Um, and then I have two that uh, worked through this year and then the plan is this fall, we're gonna hire to do another batch uh, next year. Will there, be a, will there be an application link or is there a? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will definitely tweet it in newsletter, the whole thing, so. But yeah, of how I got here, it's a lot of trial and error. So very much like an effectuation style approach to figuring out this model. Like the first time I hired the person, um, like I didn't do any sort of like regular cadence of onboarding or regular cadence of like mentoring them. And I didn't meet with them enough. And like, I learned how to do that better. Um, also early on, I made the cardinal mistake of incubating companies, which was to try to hire people to work on my ideas. Like that never works. By the way, just so that's if anybody takes away anything from this podcast is if you want to incubate companies, don't expect smart people to kind of want to come work on your idea like they never do. So the idea is we have to figure out an idea together. Uh, and then we've developed, I think, really good strategies to both identify tailwinds and opportunities to go um, really figure out effects from those tailwinds and then build businesses around that. So like the two we did this year, the, the scale path business um, and then my media business, I think, are really um really based around kind of this tailwind way first, and then you build companies around that, which uh, I think works well. So anyway, when I announce the openings for the next associate batch of associates, I'm going to do like a whole post and explain the whole model to people. So hopefully, hopefully they like it. But I'm curious in terms of the the people you choose for that, like, what is it besides the kind of demographics of like the right age, probably the right energy uh, in terms of especially now, right? Because I mean, oh, I don't yeah. know how many years you've been doing this, but presumably I would expect this to be your biggest batch of applications and large numbers would say that could mean it's also the most competitive. Like what are going to be your, also, right, you've done it um, seven times now. Like what are your selection criteria? Like who are you looking for? Like describe kind of the ideal candidate. So some of it is learning about who I work with well. Um, so I've seen that there's a strong correlation between people that perform highly on a certain set of tests and do I enjoy working with them? So I do a cognitive assessment as one of the things. So people generally perform well on that, that just tests your ability to process information quickly. Um, it turns out that the problem is not other people, it's me. I'm actually very bad at explaining stuff in detail. So people have to be able to pick up the pieces <laughs> that I like spew out. Uh, and read between the lines. So that's why I like people that score highly on that assessment. I use a personality assessment as well. Basically, characteristics I'm looking for there are like a project orientation, people who love to take on projects rather than tasks. So they want to live in a creative space, but they're also like totally self-driven. So there's part of the personality assessment will actually tell me 
does somebody want to take a leadership role? Do they like being in charge? Do they want to think, think futuristically? And that's because I don't actually work very well with people who aren't self-starters. Like if somebody needs a boss who's going to like tell them what to do and give set priorities and for them and all that stuff, I'm actually horrible at those things. That's why I do what I do and I'm not a CEO anymore. So that's super important. And then the last thing I really look for is just uh, a track record of success. I'm a big believer that what people's past is like indicates what their future is like. It's the best predictor thereof. So I'm looking for things like, you know, did you get promoted at your job? Like, did you like succeed when you tried to do things? Did you th do things extracurricularly? And I'll even go back to high school with folks at that age and understand like what they did in high school and then that sort of thing and see how they were, you know, see how they approach stuff. And ultimately the other fun stuff about digging into people's high school is that usually the echoes of what happens to people in high school, you'll see it in their behavior uh, later on. Like me personally, like my high school trauma, quote unquote, which is not that big of a deal, but like it echoes in everything I do still. Like it's a very formative set of years. And I've seen that in people just like over and over again. Um, one great example was I interviewed a guy and I'm, you know, I'm talking to him about his childhood and stuff like that. And his family got evicted three times in a year. And uh, so you look 20 years later, the guy uh, has never had a mortgage or a credit card or had any personal debt because he is just living with that like echo of what happened to him when he was 13 years old. And by understanding people's story and their trajectory and all that stuff, you can start to understand them as a person and then help them be their best person, you know, when they come work with you. So I spent a lot of time understanding where people came from, what their trajectory is, and that gives me the best idea of where they're going to go in the future. That reminds me of the question that I was going to ask you, which is secrets. You're kind of finding the secrets in people's backgrounds, and that's giving you a, a, a leg up, if you will, on like what their future will look like and how they will work with you. And my question to you was, one thing that you talk about a lot in your businesses is finding a secret or, or something that nobody else knows and then capitalizing on it. Uh, and it's funny because I, I feel like that's what you just said, that that's what you do with people. Could you talk about that in the context of building businesses? Obviously, business is built on secrets, but we hear a lot about building in public and doing things in public and no secrets. Why do you hold that opinion? What does it mean? I think an interesting way to think about it might be like not a secret, like a secret is to me is like something more so that you keep to yourself, but it's like, there's like a unique insight or data point that you have that other people maybe don't have. And I think every time I've looked at something that's like super interesting or created something, it's never been like, it's never been like just a single insight. It's usually like a combination of things. Like when we started our coding school business back in 2014, it's up to 60 people and two cities and all that kind of stuff. And it's turned into a, a nice business. You know, we had an insight about our local community, but we also had an insight about the way the world was going in terms of being short of programmers and coders. And the same thing happened with our LATAM staffing business. Like we had an insight that the labor market was going to keep getting tighter and tighter in the US. But the second insight was that small businesses were getting as comfortable as major corporations have been to offshore and have remote teammates. And that was getting accelerated by COVID. So, you know, I think that's how, how I like to think about it. It's like by being very curious about the world and reading a lot and seeing things and being observant, like you have the opportunity to triangulate these things together and together they can feel like a secret because nobody else has really put them together. But you, by by just being mindful can be prepared when you see those things and think creatively about them and see opportunities when they come along. I think that's awesome. I want to later on in the podcast, ask about like your kind of consumption habits and where you're finding information, but we can, we can come back to that in book market. Next week, we're interviewing Eric Jorgensen. 
who oh, wrote man. the book about Naval and then wrote the book about Bology. And he sent us an early copy, which I just flew through to like on, I was on a plane. I didn't mean to make the pun, but like I read that copy so fast of the, the new book. And Bology is awesome and has a lot of fascinating ideas, but he is not good for like a paranoid person to read at all. Right. Because he's yeah. like, this is the end of America. Like your money's going to be worthless tomorrow. Again, I don't want to. I like to come in contact with reality. I don't want to not think something is true or likely because I don't want it to happen, regardless of how true or likely it is to happen. The point is, you put out a tweet where you, a, a lot of bullishness on America. I don't know if like you're um, if that comes in contrast with what he's saying, because, you know, he talks a lot about p- politics and media, whereas you kind of approached it from like a fundamental standpoint. I'm kind, kind of curious on like your outlook on like kind of what someone like that says about like the big picture systems of, of the world. And that's like a hard question. No. But yeah, no, no, I dig it. I just dig to it. like either, you know, talk, Kyle and myself, we've spiraled so many times over the, the past three years together on the phone with just like this crisis, that crisis, this one's the end, this one's the end. Cause like you're smart and like, you know, bad things happen historically and you don't want to be naive, but also you just don't know. And you seem yeah. to be like a little bit more measured about these types of things uh look uh okay so let me let me talk to you about my tweet which was great i wrote this uh tweet which got like six million views and it was like a defense of like the future of america or if not america like the north american continent being like the center for leadership for the world just because of the beautiful nature of our geography and i didn't make up this idea a lot of people have it and a lot of people talk about it um but like like I, I presented it on Twitter and then, you know, Bajali, who is a great guy, like he is a, he's a really good person. He saw my tweet overnight, like, cause he's up at like 2 AM. I go to bed like a normal person at like nine o'clock. Um, but he sent me a tweet and he like dunked on my, he dunked on the whole tweet and then he DM'd me and he said, Hey man, I just want you to know, like, this is meant as positive, constructive discourse. And I was like, that is awesome. I look forward to reading what you have. And it was the nicest rebuttal ever. And then, uh, and then I was like, you know, I went and replied to his stuff and I was like, dude, like, this is the nicest rebuttal ever. I love the, I love the positive discourse of all this. And like, like it was just the nicest thing. Like, and so I was so proud of that. Cause like, I want to have like positive, nice people in my life. And like us doing that was just something I was like, okay, this is amazing. But it was like, this is nice off. And I just, I loved it. And I love what, I love what he does. I think it's important to think about like, if you're a futurist, what do you have to do all the time? You can't just give people nuanced, like probabilistic things. You got to like go, you got to go sit in a corner and you got to advocate for that thing. And I understand why when you're a futurist and you do what he does, like you got to do that. And look, I think the world needs futurists because even though they're going to be right 30% of the time, you should really pay attention. Like the dude was totally right about COVID becoming a thing. And like, I appreciate that. Like, yay, you know, and, and that's why venture capitalists also love these guys who are futurists because they only got to be right like one out of every 10 times. But when they're right, they're just really, really, really right. Um, I think in this situation, like I'm very bullish on America. I've spent time running like real Main Street businesses. Like I'm in peer groups of CEOs of Main Street businesses. I've gone to foreign countries and seen what the other side of the equation looks like. And like what we have going on in America, both from our unfair advantages of the geography and then like the other unfair advantages of everything we have built up over the past 250 years, like it just blows my mind that people suddenly think that the whole empire is going to end when we've been like the the only economy to grow every single decade for like the past 150 years. Like it just doesn't it logically it doesn't make any sense. And then the last thing I'll give you, like I've watched the transition in media as I've grown older, like I'm 48, you know, just 25 ish years ahead of you guys in terms of age. 
Like I've watched it incrementally do more where the commercial aspects of media wants to scare you to sell you more stuff. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And like it's with what's happening with social competing with conventional media, like they're having to go even higher to try to scare you that the world is about to end. And it just keeps not ending. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's just my way of saying like, I'm very bullish on America. We have, if you look at it objectively, it's great. Um, and also I appreciate the stuff that futurists have to do and I understand their plight to um, make sure we tell you stuff. So you do things and look at what we're saying. Yeah, it makes me think of the, uh, the interstate system. I mean, how are you going to stop the interstate system? I, I'm reading a biography of Dwight Eisenhower right now, and uh, I couldn't agree more with the natural advantages that we have being overlooked in our uh, position in the world. When people are, are saying like, you know, it's the end of the American empire, blah, blah, blah. I agree uh, with you. There's very much so in life. Um, yeah, Dave Foster Wallace has this great commencement speech where he talks about this is water, right? Like every time I see something like that come along, I'm like, okay, should I like, is this a this is water moment? Um, so this, the parable of this is water is like two young fish are like swimming along in a in, in, an, in an ocean and uh, an old fish swims by and he asks the two young fish, you know, hey boys, how's the water? And the old fish swims on by and the two young fish are by themselves. And the one young fish turns to the other young fish and he says, what the fuck is water? And so, or what the hell is water? Depending on, you curse, you bleep that out if you want. But like, but that's the idea. There's so many things that we just live every single day that because our focus to, towards a complicated world is so limited um, and, and our ability to process information is relatively narrow and our perspective is just the movie we're seeing when we walk around. Like a lot of times you forget that there's just, we're swimming in water, right? And the interstate system is one, like the economy of the United States is another one. The power of the dollar is another one. Like there's just all these things. And then like the, the talent in the United States, like we just, they're, they're, this is water moments, how safe airplanes are. Like they're incredibly safe. Like you're safer flying than you are driving to the airport. Like all those things are, this is water moments. And for me now, like I'm very cognizant whenever somebody is prognosticating the end of the world or things are going to end like, is this a, this is water moment or like, should I have better perspective on things than maybe other people do? I think it's a really good framing. And I think something, you know, I, I really am not backing up this claim with evidence. So this is just a from the hip statement. That's not like uh, rigorous really, but I feel like biology and, you know, I work with a lot of, uh, I don't know if they're to the extent, degree of biology, but just through the podcast and even like studying engineering, like you meet a lot of like hyper intelligent people. And I think they're like one of their, common fatal flaws of like brilliant people is just forgetting that other people aren't as smart as them and like won't see like biology i think just assumes that like everyone's not as smart as he is but like on the same degree and like thinks the way he thinks and it's just like doesn't have and when he spends the past 20 years in silicon valley or whatever or like on stanford and like phd chemical engineering classes it's like these are just not the how brains work for the majority of people in the world it's like change is going to carry out differently compared to like just people living a much more normal like closer to the mean lifestyle with a closer to the mean head on their shoulders. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's totally a fair way to look at it. There's also the idea that like, you know, we, we conflate it, right? Like intelligence in one thing does not mean intelligence in another thing. Like the classic perfect example is doctors are often terrible businessmen. Though the doctors, it's interesting now, doctors by and large, when I talk to them, know they're not good businessmen. So actually now the worst businessmen are actually dentists because they don't, they haven't figured it out yet. 
Uh, I want to now come back to what I said I'd bookmark because I, I probably have like a 30% track record for saying I'm a bookmark something, come back to it, and then just we get carried away. So we're going to contribute to up that percentage here. What's like your process for continuing to find valuable new information? And because you're, you're super prolific, and I think a lot of it is just genuinely like sitting in a quiet room and reflecting on like the myriad of life experiences that you've had. But in terms of like seeing and having conviction in something like you know, small businesses are actually being receptive to higher international talent or the demand for software engineers is outpacing the supply of software engineers to like see and have the conviction to act on those things means you're plugged in somewhere. There's like, I don't know if it's like a, a couple of people who are just like, maybe it's just study biology and you're going to consistently get ahead on a couple of good ideas if you discard all the, the other stuff. But I'm curious, like what generally your thesis is around staying sharp and cutting edge um, and inspired. What's well, interesting, my consumption of information has naturally shifted as I've gotten older. Like one of the things I've figured out a couple of years ago was like all the business books have like the same 200 ideas. They just say them in different ways, like like Blue Ocean Theory, Porter's Five Forces, like they're all just the same idea. Like, um, you know, so so once I dug into that, I started to really think about my information diet needing to be more of nuanced and and the unknown unknowns. And so my actual like reading of books and that sort of thing has really decreased over time because I found other sources for that. Um, you know, I think a lot of people will attribute Twitter for that type of unknown unknown ability uh, to find stuff there. Um, and then I think YouTube is one where I loved going in there and finding and digging into my passions around there. Um, and then there's, for me, there's a real positive cycle, which you talked about, which is the act of creating means that suddenly I'm like much more like aware of things, right? It's the, the Paul Graham kind of prepared mind thing. He talks about that's the best way to find startup ideas. Like just go start doing stuff, but have a prepared mind for when you see it, then you know, you can jump on it content I, for me is the same way, right? Like I'm doing now these like video clips where I go in and talk about what you can learn from a video clip and tie it back to real world stuff. Um, today I did like something from Bull Durham, click send before we started. Um, and it's, it's like, it's a leadership lesson from like a baseball movie, but like, because I have a prepared mind, I'm going in now into YouTube and other places and looking for these things as I'm intellectually wandering. So anyway, it's just a long way of saying, like, I feel like I, wanted to stop getting the same like 100 or 200 business lessons over and over again. That's why I'm not reading as many books anymore. Um, and I spend a lot more time on Twitter, YouTube and real time platforms where people are talking in much more nuanced ways. And then accentuating that by creating companies and creating content like those like accelerate my flywheel like a ton. Um, and then I have friends like I'm in signal chats and stuff like that with people that I think are smart. I curate those people. And we talk about stuff that's interesting for us. Uh, I encourage everybody to do that, like find your peer group and have like a running signal group chat uh, or WhatsApp chat. Like those are huge as well. Everything I'm learning these days from YouTube to Twitter to newsletters, like I've got a peer group in those that I talk to about, you know, how to do that podcast as well. I still think newsletters are massively underrated in terms of uh, the quality of content that comes from just a few people. I feel like that's where most of the things I've been like ahead of the curve in terms of like realizing them early. It's just like, five to 15 people who are just always consistently saying new and interesting things and just reading yeah. what they say pretty religiously. Please subscribe to my newsletter. I'm desperate. <laughs> uh, I think the, the mistake people are making with newsletters a lot, and this may be like inside baseball, like 
Like people think because it's a newsletter, suddenly you don't have to like respect the audience's attention span anymore. And like the great newsletters all still stick to kind of the three to four minute to five minute reading thing. And, and for mine, I really try to do that as well. It's like, oh, ain't, ain't nobody got time for a 20 minute newsletter read. That's just, that's just my opinion. Well, I feel like now I've seen you're taking your newsletter and just putting it directly on Twitter. And, and X is trying kind of to like envelop all of the different, um, you know, sources that you would post things on uh, and become the all-in-one platform for content creators for everything. And um, it'll be interesting to see how much of that market they can capture. I think that for newsletter writers, just putting your entire newsletter on Twitter is a no-brainer. I mean... Yeah, and it's just, I mean, David Ogilvy talked about it as the advertising guy. He talked about, um, you know, remember that you're you're advertising to a parade and not a seated audience. Uh, so mm -hmm. like myself and other creators, like two thirds of my stuff right now is me recycling the hits. Like I'm like Taylor Swift showing up and playing, playing her best stuff at the concert. She's arguably a lot richer and more successful than I am. But like, you know, I think that's, that's one of the mindset shifts I had to make was early on. I was like, okay, well the audience heard this, so I won't repeat it. And now like, I just like, we all repeat the hits. And so like, I'll do that. Like ideas that work on Twitter, I go do those on YouTube, YouTube newsletter and you know, you try to catch the audience as it's walking by. And even then, like I had a buddy the other day, he's like, Hey, uh, I read every single one of your tweets. That one from last week was good. It's the third time I've read that tweet. <laughs> he didn't know. And you can just say it's, you know, I'm not here to please you. Right. It's like, I have, I know who I'm serving. I think, do you follow Dickie Bush on Twitter? Yeah. 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 I think he's like the best at this. Like he's so repetitive, but it's so helpful because it's just like who he's serving is just trying to get people to who aren't writing online to start writing online and for people who are writing online to like be better at it. And it's kind of just the same five to 15 mistakes. It's like, you're not carving out time every day to do it. You don't have, know who you're talking. It's like, and he just hammers it constantly. But like, as long as you're in that persona and you're like at that stage in your journey, that is exactly what you need to hear. So he just says it nonstop, the same few things. But it's like actually so helpful that he does that. I admire those guys like him, Justin Welsh, who are, you know, Greg Eisenberg's another one just says the same thing over and over again. And Eisenberg is probably not in that thing, but like some of those other guys, like they're just like every day, same as the next. And I struggle with it. I really can't. Like I, I, I'm too curious. And, uh, maybe if I had to do all this to like feed my family and stuff and it was my job, like I would see it differently, but I have too much fun, like being a real human and following like things I actually want to talk about. So I don't know, maybe that'll change someday, but like, uh, I, I struggle. I, I don't think I could do what Dickie does. I think there's just a straighter line for him and like, what is a, like who exactly he wants to attract into his audience, Yeah. right? It's just like all this products revolve around tools for writers, courses for writers, information for writers, things for writers. So it's like, that's just, whereas for you, I don't think there's like as clear of a path, right? It's, it's business owners. It could be deal flow for like the variety of different types of investing opportunities you do. But it's not, you're not, you know, you have Dura, but you have other things. It's not just purely, if all you cared about was just like, I want to find niche SaaS people. And that was the only thing that mattered to you. It was like, how do I get a big following of niche SaaS people? You'd probably be able to like discipline yourself to only talk about niche SaaS stuff. But like, and also what you're doing like is working generally. It's, it's yeah. a very different set of goals <laughs> that you're working backwards from, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and ultimately, like the thing I've learned, like on social or whatever, like if you have fun, everybody else will have fun. If you have fun doing, like when we do our podcast, if we have fun making the podcast, I know it's a great podcast. And so that's, you know, that's the other thing I try to do. If like I'm on Twitter or I'm on LinkedIn or whatever, or YouTube, and I'm not really enjoying myself and I'm mm. not having a ball, like I should 
close the app. And I've had to train myself to do that. Otherwise, then you start writing angry stuff. That doesn't that doesn't help anybody. I love that litmus test, having fun. Um, I wanted to ask you about what you learned from your coffee shop experience. I think that that was, I really got into Twitter uh, in 2020 and I logged on and I think that was like one of the first things that I saw was like your coffee shop. And I'm like, I wait, this is sick. Uh, so, so what did you learn from that experience? I know you started three of them and it recently got acquired. Yeah. Um, man, learned a lot of stuff from that. I think, uh, uh, I think I tweeted the other day, I'm allergic to high CapEx businesses and I just don't want to do it. I think, um, you know, I think it's another one when we looked up 24 months into the journey, um, things are going fine. Like we're getting good return on investment. None of us was really waking up every morning saying like, we are going to be like the killers at coffee shops. Like it, it was entertaining, but like none of us wanted to have, you know, a lifestyle centered around that. And we sold the business to a couple brothers and their partner who they get up every morning and they live, breathe and eat coffee. Like that's, that's the whole business. That's what their whole thing is. And I think that's a key thing, you know, of learning from all that, like y- you want to be passionate about things. I was passionate about the idea of incubating the business. And that was the very first business I incubated where I never worked in the business from day one. Uh, actually the one time I did try to make coffee, I broke the machine. <laughs> Let's go. So <laughs> like, it's how to be useless. Um, and so that, you know, that, that was definitely a learning there. I think since then, one of the innovations I've done, like for every new business, uh, I have a checklist and it's like, here's the 20 things I wanted to have. And I avoid making emotional decisions, pursuing ideas that I don't want to pursue uh, through that checklist. I just like, okay, well, like you don't have a big enough TAM, like X, okay, next idea. Cause I'll have another one tomorrow. Like that's, I'm not worried about that. Um, so I think that's that's the last big takeaway from all that was like, okay, like let's be more premeditated about the things I decide to work on. And uh, and the business size I've incubated since doing that one, you know, in the past three years have all been much closer to the ideal for me. Well, we're entering the last 10 or so minutes here of the, of the show. So let's do a few bonus questions. I want to hear, right, so you're kind of a very prominent entrepreneur on Twitter, have a lot of successful companies and you're not moving to Austin, you're not moving to Miami, you're not doing all that. I'm kind of curious on your, and again, kind of where we started the conversation was like, all advice has a lot of context, and this is very much probably less so principal advice, because you're an example of someone being hyper successful in not one of these kind of marquee startup type cities, and there's all sorts of counterexamples to the, to the other. But what's kind of your framing of the kind of early in your career versus later in your career, big city, small city, hometown, make it work type decision because you've kind of made the decision to really plant roots in San Antonio for the past. I don't know how long you've been there, but it seems like a while. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, well, I do think for clarity, you know, I had had discussions with my business coach three, four years ago, just about where my career was going and stuff like that. And, and, and basically like where the things and types of ideas I wanted to work on, you know, could I do that living in a smaller market, right? Because to some extent, like, I feel like I moved back to San Antonio from Silicon Valley and I brought a lot of the ambition and ideas of out there to here. And I, if I look at everything that frustrates me about San Antonio, by the way, it is things where I try to live a Northern California lifestyle in San Antonio. Like I want to be outdoors. I want to eat healthy. Like I want to like go out to eat on the weeknights, like all the things where it's like, no, that doesn't happen that often in San Antonio. Um, but look, I think that the, my point there is, I think 10, 15 years ago, if you were a young, ambitious person in your twenties or thirties, like you had to go move to the big cities to create 
the maximize opportunity. I think there was no other choice. You needed to be in a, you know, a Phoenix or a Dallas or, or an Austin or a New York, um, or an LA. Um, you know, and I think I'm a great example now. I think there is another path, another lifestyle choice you can make where you can use the internet as the place that becomes your playground. And for me, like all these businesses I'm starting now, like they're rarely people that are San Antonio or even tied to the San Antonio community, like scale path or peer network, like the, the CEOs in Brooklyn, right. And his employees are in Calgary. Like, it's just like that there's that opportunity to make the internet your place of business in your community versus moving to one of those cities. Um, that does not solve the dating problem, which is like, if I was like a 20 something year old heterosexual man, I would definitely move to New York city. Like there's no other, <laughs> there's no other option to it. Like there's huge benefits to doing that. And, and all of that can solve there. And look, I think in your twenties, you know, I'll tell my kids if they want to live in San Antonio, that's great. If they want to move to the big city, there's a lot of benefits to doing that. I did a tour of duty there and I think it's a really good thing to do in your twenties to go get exposed to a lot of things, both from a business and a life standpoint to mature. Uh, I think as you get older, you know, people at my stage of life are Brent Bashore or Andrew Wilkinson, or you just keep, you name all these people who are like very big on the internet, but they all live in like these random places. Nick Huber lives in like Athens, Georgia. Like there's a pattern there where once you get established and you have a level of knowledge, like you can continue to be ambitious in these second and third tier cities. And I think that's a great change for places like San Antonio. Like, I think it's amazing. Um, so anyway, that was maybe more of a nuanced answer than you were looking for, but I don't think there's, I don't think there's a single right answer, um, for, for young people or old people these days. And I, I really think the growth of the internet and the communities around there have done all of that. And it's, it's made the world a better place, I think. I was saying, I think that could be kind of like one of the water things as well we're talking about, kind of like a hidden tailwind of like remote work and opportunities is just like strengthening of non, just like um, more more and more cities that just have strong economies because they have like less brain drain and kind of all those things if people can like be ambitious and hyper successful in random X anywhere place. Yep. So that's yes. another like hidden thing that's good for America. That's kind of just like sneaky that no one's paying attention to. Not a million no percent. paying attention to, but yeah. it's not a part of the conversation and it could be. This whole office is filled, like I, I made my own co-working space a few years ago. And uh, this whole office is filled with people that are just like that. They're working for New York companies. They're working for fully remote companies. Uh, they're working for GitLab, like, like just like, but they have high powered, high paying jobs, but they're able to live the lifestyle that they want to live near family here in San Antonio. And yeah, I think it's a huge tailwind, uh, definitely a win for communities like like San Antonio. Uh, I have one last question. I'm 23. I'm very attracted to the idea of a hold co. What prerequisites or a personal hold co? What pre prerequisites would you say are necessary, both in mindset and skills and financially, that you have to have to uh, begin that uh, road, that process? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think strongly and like, I'm not sure if this is a universal principle or I'm sure our, our stylistic choice. So anyway, that's, that's, I'll lay that out there as, as you start to listen to this advice. But as I look at what I do and the way I do what I do, um, sitting in my seat, running a whole co, I think that I get immense benefit and unfair advantage having both started businesses and been the CEO of multiple businesses. Like the, the CEO's that I work with, I can see them treat me a certain way because I'm like, well, let me tell you about this, right? Let me tell you about the time I put payroll on credit cards. Like, let me tell you about the time, like, you know, our bank got unhappy with us. Like, 
I've been there and I've been in their seats. So there's a level of like credibility I think you get by having done that and built one business uh, at least and gone that way. And I think that's, that's the path I would recommend a lot of people do. Like at least be the CEO of one business first, whether you buy it or build it, have it cash flow and use that as a foundation to go acquire more. Um, do I think that's the only way? Uh, I don't think so. I think you could definitely do that as an exception, but I think that's the safest and easiest path. And that's the one I do and, and I believe strongly. And that's why if I was to do it again, that's totally the way I would do it again. I'll make this my final question as well. So kind of over the arc of your career, is there kind of one habit or practice that you kind of are super into now that you've been into for a long time? It's not something that's like one to three weeks old, like it's been durable that you really wish you'd been kind of doing the whole time. I think like some common answers people have is like coaching. Maybe you, you hinted at peer groups, that could be it. Cycling, kind of I'm curious if there's one that really stands out as like, this is the one that makes made the big difference. And if only I was doing it all along. Yeah, I think, um, I think, this idea of thinking in decades and not years is a really powerful one. In my 20s and 30s, I was like a lot of 20 and 30 somethings that I talk to now who are scared to make long-term plans. And uh, like I've talked to some very successful 30 somethings that are like, yeah, I can do like a one-year plan, but I'm I'm really uncomfortable having a 10-year vision. I'm like, well, you know, the 10-year vision can change, right? Or if the five-year vision can change. And they're like, yeah, that still seems like really long. I don't think I can think that long-term. And, you know, I think that starting in my 40s, I started to take the EOS methodology, which is business planning methodology that forces you to put together a 10-year vision. And I started to force myself to have a 10-year vision for myself. And right now I have a 10-year vision. It's like, okay, I'm going to try to achieve that thing in the next 10 years. And, you know, I think that's a habit that I adopted, you know, in the past years and has been hugely important. I started doing it in 2017. And uh, that just North Star where I'm like, okay, here's the rubric, like, I'm headed that way. Is this decision going to help me optimally get there or not? And if the answer is no, then like I don't do the thing. And I think that's immensely powerful, but there's this blockage that a lot of people have in their 20s and 30s where they refuse to do that. And they're just like, well, I'm just kind of YOLOing it. And then like opportunities present themselves. And, um, you know, I think if I could do it over again, I would definitely love to talk to young Michael and tell him like, just pick something out there. Just have like a 10 year plan and it's okay. Don't worry about if you don't get there and don't be scared. If you change it, that's just the nature of things. But you know you're not going to get there if you don't have a destination. <laughs> so so I think that's been a huge thing. I tweeted about like the whole system I use, gave it away for free on Twitter. So um, encourage people to do that. But yeah, I also understand why it's scary when you're 20-something and 30-something. A year or 10 years seems like an immensely long time. At my age, 10 years does not seem that far. It seems pretty short. Well, this has been an awesome podcast. Really glad we were able to get connected and, and record this today. Uh, you're, you know, a YouTuber now. You're still crushing on Twitter. You promote the newsletter, which probably, and you also have a website that probably links to everything. Uh, so now's your chance to tell the people the best thing, the best place to start uh, if they want to keep up and keep going. Yeah, uh, check out everything at girdly.com. That's my website. Maybe by the time this podcast comes out, our new version of the website will be out, which should hopefully improve over the very janky purple one that we have now. Uh, but the uh, process of continual improvement uh, improves all the time. So it's girdly.com. That's my last name. And uh, check it out. Amazing. Thank you so much, Michael.